What's up, folks? Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you guys today. Uh, hey, so we are doing this series during Lent. Speaking of things liturgical, during this season of Lent, uh, the series is called Dust to Dust, and we are reflecting on what it means to have a body. Right? So on the one hand, not too profound. We're all pretty used to having a body. We always have. But on the other hand, there's a good chance that we don't think very often about what it means that God made us as bodily creatures. So uh, in the past few weeks, we've talked about the fundamental goodness of the body. Uh, we've talked about the scriptures and body image. I think a, a huge topic for our culture. Uh, last week, we talked about the body and sin. Uh, if you missed any of those, I'd encourage you maybe go back and get those. There's, there's uh, some, some good stuff there. And today, we are talking about the body and identity. The body and identity and how these two tie in together in the scriptures. So um, let's, uh, let's start our, our conversation around this by talking about St. Patrick's Day, yes? Because we just had St. Patrick's Day at our house. We had... Uh, some wonderful home, homemade Irish soda bread. We had a great big corned beef, potatoes, cabbage, Guinness, all of the Irishy kind of things, yes? So uh, this has been a bigger thing in our house the last handful of years because my wife, Samantha, through the magic of Ancestry.com, discovered a few years ago that not only is she very, very English, she knew that, but she's also quite Irish. This came up. And it was very exciting, because I've always been quite Irish, right? My uh, very English also, but my mom's maiden name is Irish, so I've grown up around all this Irishness, right? But Sam was all stoked. She's all excited about this. And so, um, you know, there's little Irishy things start making their way into the house, and pillows with shamrocks, and, you know, kiss me, I'm Irish, which is brilliant, by the way. I'm sure every other ethnicity was like, why didn't we take that one? That is so good. Ah, man. All these things, and St. Patrick's Day was a big, big deal. So this was super fun. But then, like one year, two years after that, also through the magic of Ancestry.com, who are constantly updating their, their records as they accumulate more data and your percentages of being this or that change, Sam's Irishness dropped down to a really small sliver of the pie. So it was a little deflating, <laughs> being like super Irish, and then, and then being like, oh no. And then... In the same year, my ancestry came back, and on that, it also said that I was almost not Irish at all. <laughs> I was like, how can this be? I have an Irish name. It's, this is, you know, my whole childhood, it's around this, but it turns out, no, 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 I'm actually English and Scottish, and then discover there's this whole backstory about the Scotch-Irish and how all this stuff, and so, like, in a matter of days, we, were, we felt like we'd sort of been reduced from all this rich and wonderful Irishness that we were enjoying to like kilts and bar fights. You know, it was like, what happened to all of this culture? And oh, it was, it was, it was very painful. It took a, a couple minutes to adjust to that. But uh, as, as we've seen over the last couple weeks as we've been looking at, at the scriptures, uh, the body isn't everything, right? Sometimes we make it that. The body isn't everything. But also, the body isn't nothing. Uh, the body says something, among other things, about who we are. It says something about our identity, right? And, and our, our little Irish experience is kind of one small picture of that. There are aspects of who we are as people, our ethnicity, right? Our family history, 
our maleness and femaleness, there's aspects of these that are closely bound to our bodily existence. And the scriptures talk about this too. So um, maybe this is kind of a question that we could put in this. So just think about this. Is my body me? Is my body me? Or, on the other hand, does my body just sort of house me and the real me lives inside of my body? Right? Which might this be? Thought experiment to go along with this. So say you're meeting me for the first time. Say you're meeting me for the, for, the, for the first time and I introduce myself and say, hi, it's very nice to meet you. I'm Nancy Pelosi. Right? And you, you say back to me, oh, well, that's, that's funny. You don't really look like a Nancy. And you have the same name as the longtime Speaker of the House. And I say, no, no, not just the same name. I am that person. I am Nancy Pelosi. Right? You, you would probably question that. <laughs> say, well, I suppose that's possible, but you're six foot tall and have a beard. You know, this, it doesn't seem to fit. You wouldn't need to see my driver's license to figure out that maybe, maybe that's not who I am. Or if I introduced myself to you and said, hello, I'm LeBron James, right? Similarly, you would say, no, 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 I, I don't think you are. You are, you're a, little, you're a little too pale and not quite tall enough to be LeBron James. There is an aspect of our identity that is always going to be tied to our bodily self, our physical self uh, as well. So this is myth number four. Each of these weeks has been built around a different myth that we often tell ourselves about our bodies. Myth number four, my body isn't me. It's just a shell that houses the real me. Right? This is something that we, we commonly in our culture believe some version of this, whether we say it out loud or not. Commonly believe, no, no, the real me is what lives inside. The body is, is just kind of the vehicle that is going to carry that around. And um, I won't review it, but if you go back to last week's, we talked a little bit about dualism and Plato and Socrates and how they've shaped our view of the human person as being these separate entities that don't really connect. The scriptures, on the other hand, give us a view of the human person that's integrated, where all of our parts, our inner world and our body, are all part of the oneness that God makes us to be. So the scriptural perspective would be something more like this, that your body is as much you as your mind and your spirit are. Your body is every bit as much you, the real you, as is your inner world, your, your mind, your spirit, your soul. And, and why does this matter? Why is this important? This goes back to something that we said in week one, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by a good God who loves us. That God has declared that you, all of you, are his workmanship and he has purposes for you. And friends, for you and I to live well into those purposes, for you and I to live well into the existence that a good and loving God has planned for us means in part to be in touch with who we are, with who it is that he has made us to be. If we exclude our body from that understanding, then we do harm. We do harm to ourselves and the purposes that God has for us. Your body is as much you as your mind and your spirit are. So here's where we're going this morning. Uh, we're, to see this, we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to go back to Genesis, look again at how we are created, 
look at, at two truths that relate to that, aspects of how our body contributes to who we are, and then uh, we'll end with one way that we can apply this and continue to grow in this truth. So let's pray, and let's look at the scriptures together. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would be working in our hearts and working in our midst in such a way that we would be able to see you clearly. God, may we come to a deeper and deeper understanding of your goodness and the goodness of your creation. God, let us understand more and more what it means to be human, what it means to be people. God, the glory that's inherent in that. And God, as we embrace that, we pray that you might better use us in your world, that our bodies might be instruments of your use, Uh, to bring your shalom, your peace, your justice, your love, your grace to this world around us. So God, meet us as we worship. Uh, We pray that even the act of studying scripture would be part of how we say we love you, part of uh, how we worship you today. And God, we pray that you'd meet each of us right where we're at. Uh, And Lord, draw us closer to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to Genesis And uh, the the first point that we want to make here is this, that your body tells you something about how you bear the image of God. Your body tells uh, tells something about how you, in particular, bear God's image. And the early chapters of Genesis give us a couple examples of this. This is from Genesis chapter 1. This is the creation of people. It's verse 26. It says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, friends, the first thing that we learn Uh, about humans, is that we are made in the image of God. And we talked about this a lot on week one, but just to to review it again, we are made in the image of God. There is a glory to you and I that is unique among the rest of creation. And also, as we said in week one, uh, the fact that we are flesh and blood, images of God, that we are bodily creatures. This is part of what the scriptures declare to be very good. This is in the very beginning. Sin has not tainted this picture at all at this point. And God looks at us, these enfleshed creatures, and says, this is very good. Now, in these verses, we also see here that God created us as gendered beings, male and female made in the image of God. And this, too, is part of what God is declaring very good in this passage. Part of how you and I, in particular, bear God's image is as a person who is male or a person who is female. And we want to note here that this maleness and femaleness, that this is portrayed as a physical reality. This is part of our bodily reality. And we see this Uh, if nowhere else, in the fact that we're told to be fruitful and multiply, right? Which is is intrinsically tied to the bodily aspect of being male and female. Apart from that, that's a meaningless statement. If we don't have that bodily dimension, 
of being male and female. Now, hold on to that, because we're going to come back to it. There's some important things that are tied to that. But there's also a bodily dimension to our ethnic and our family identity, to that aspect of our history as people. If you turn a couple of pages to Genesis chapter 10, we come to one of those delightful long lists of genealogies, which is if you've ever done like a I'm going to read through the Bible in a year sort of thing, then you've gone through pages and pages of these so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, and you have, you have relished every word of those pages. So we're in one of those in Genesis chapter 10. It says, these are the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. There's, there's about two dozen more, and I was thinking, I'll, I'm going to read you every one deliberately and passionately, and then I said, no, I won't. We'll stop there. But I, I want you to catch this refrain at the end of this long list of names. It says, from these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Now, that's followed by another long list of names, the sons of Ham and who they are and where their families settled. And then again, you have this refrain. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then another long list of names, the sons of Shem and their names and where they settled. And then once again, this refrain, these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now, the thing that I want us to note here is that the people are identified in ways that are very earthy. The geography of where these different bands of people settled, where these families grew into clans and grew into nations, where not nation states as we know them today, but, but grew into these, these people groups, <clears throat> uh, all of this is kind of detailed as being important. And, uh, and with that, the languages they spoke, the families and the tribes that developed there. There's the whole aspect of culture developing in these and uh, that, that goes along with any population of people. There's a culture that develops around that too. So it's, as a modern person, these lists are pretty uninteresting to us. But as an ancient person, these were actually really important and really fascinating and really said quite a bit. I mean, if, if you uh, if you're reading this kind of a list and, and you're recognizing different regions or places or clans on this, you're able to say, okay, okay, yeah. One time I met a man from Cush, and he had, he had this color skin, and he had these kinds of physical features, and they ate this kind of food, and they spoke this particular language. Right? All of these are very bodily realities. These are, are social realities, and these are realities that are inseparable from our physical selves. Now, friends, for you and I, part of how we, in particular, bear the image of God is as an embodied person that has a particular family history, that has a particular lineage, that has a particular ethnicity, that has probably a language that's associated with that people, that has different foods and different cultural symbols and practices that are associated with those people. And many of these are housed in our bodies. They come out in our DNA. They come out in our physical characteristics. They come out in family histories. They come out in languages that have been shaped 
by a long history of a bunch of embodied people living in a particular way in a particular place over time. Now, all this is a little later in Genesis, and someone might, might ask the question, well, is this good also? This comes after the fall. Is this part of what the scriptures consider good? And the answer is absolutely yes. The Bible celebrates these differences, celebrates the uniqueness with which each of us represents the image of God. Right? Because we all represent it in a slightly different way. And that's needed. It's, it's, almost like, it's almost like we're all pieces of, of a mosaic or parts of a, uh, parts of a painting where you don't have the full picture unless you're able to see all the different pieces and all the different colors and all the different shapes together at once. We all bear God's image and all live under the declaration of being very good. Part of how we see this is that when we get to the New Testament, one of the things that we're told there, and it's, it's repeated several times in different books of the New Testament, it's not a small issue at all, uh, we're told that when Jesus dies on the cross, not only is he doing that to deal with our sin as individuals, but there is a reconciling effect that this has on people. That those differences which most commonly divide us in life, and the New Testament commonly lists three, and We'll identify with these, but the differences between male and female, and the differences between people of different races, and the difference between people of different classes, commonly separate us. And the New Testament again and again says part of why Christ died was to tear down that separation. That in God's holy people, those things are to be removed. The hostility that exists between those different groups is something that died with Jesus on the cross, it says in Ephesians 2. And in Colossians, in Colossians 3, there's this wonderful summary statement where it says, Christ is all, saying of all these different groups, Christ is all of these, and Christ is in all. Right? Don't miss this, friends. As, as God's plan for the world breaks in, as sin is being reversed, one of the things that we see is that these different groups are not eradicated. Their difference is part of the goodness. What's bad is that they're separate, and now they're brought together. So it's, it's, you know, the New Testament doesn't eradicate one gender or the other and say, oh, this is the good one, right? Or look at the different races and say, oh, this is the superior one. No, no, no. Christ is all, and he is in all. Uh, one more image of this, because <clears throat> this, this one involves our bodies too, but in kind of a different way. So after the resurrection, we'll be given new bodies. This is the topic for next week. After the resurrection, we'll be given new bodies. We won't just be disembodied spirits. There, there's a bodily existence that happens in heaven and beyond as well. Uh, and Revelation 7 gives a picture of this, and as we read the passage, ask, what do you notice about these resurrected bodies? It says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, this list of worshipers sounds a lot like Genesis 10, doesn't it? 
And we see here that even in the new body, there's still a dimension there where our, our ethnicity is still recognizable. This is part of what goes on with us into eternity. The same can be said of gender as well. When we see the resurrected Jesus, he is, he's still male. He's still in a gendered body. And you see glimpses of this too in Jesus' parable about Abraham and Lazarus. Uh, you see this in um, Hebrews 11, the list of both men and women of faith that have gone before us and they're portrayed presently as men and women. So this remains too. This is part of how we image a good God. Now consequently, you still with me, friends? Consequently, I need to be me. I need to be who I am if I'm going to bear the image of God well. And more than that, I need you to be who you are if you are to bear the image of God well. Because it's something that we bear together, right? Differences brought together in such a way that God's image is seen in us all. Uh, So that's one. Uh, Your body, your physical self is part of the way that you are you and part of how you bear the image of God. Uh, A second truth in Genesis that we want to visit here is this. It's that your body and your soul are intertwined. So uh, Genesis 1 was where we were at. Genesis 2, it zooms in on the creation of people. And, and says a little more also about their task of caring for God's creation. And this chapter 2, it further reinforces the idea that your body is not an accessory. Your body is part of who you are. In fact, we can't fully understand what it is to be human apart from a body. Now this is Genesis 2, verse 5. It says, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Or some of your translations might say he became a living soul. Uh, that word there, the Hebrew word behind living being or living soul is the word nephes. And note here in this passage, this is so interesting, nephes does not just refer to the breath of God going into the man. It refers to the whole man. He receives the breath of God and becomes a nephes. He becomes a living soul. In other words, it's not that Adam is given a soul He is a soul. Now, note this too. Uh, Note also how Adam was made, right? Where this creation starts. Does it start with a soul? It doesn't. It starts with a body. It starts with God taking a bit of this very earth that Adam and and Eve are, are called to tend to and fashioning from that a body. That comes first. And then breath is given to that body. And at that point, he becomes a living soul. I like the way that uh, a theologian named Sam Alberry puts it. He says, God didn't first make a soul, call it Adam, and then look for some sort of physical container to put it in, uh, as if the real Adam was his soul and the body was just like a Tupperware that he finds to store it in. Now, God starts with 
body, a physical, material uh, object. And then this body becomes a living soul. Now, friends, the implication for you and I is that not only do we have a soul, we could say that you are a soul. The body and soul are interwoven in such a way that they are inseparable. They are intertwined. Right? Your body is, is not incidental. It's not an afterthought to who you are or how you were made. This is part of, goods, of God's good design for us. So it's, it's inaccurate for us to think about the body as just a shell. and the, the real me kind of floats around and then you know, finds its way into one. God eventually puts it into a body. Uh, in fact, in biblical terms, that, that word again, nephes, it, uh, soul, we often translate it, it most often refers to the whole person, body included. Usually when you see that in scripture, it's the whole thing, body, soul, mind, heart. Uh, let, me, um, let me diagram this. So here's how we often visualize this, right? And we might picture it something like this. Right, where we have a body, right, and that's kind of the outer part of us. And then within that, there's, there's our inner stuff, right? There's, there's sort of a, a mind and heart and spirit, and maybe you'd put soul in that, but you've got the inner world. And then maybe we think about the soul being that deepest part of us in the very center of our being. Well, sometimes the scripture does, does use the word soul that way, as, uh, as sort of that deepest part. But most often, it's it would be better diagrammed maybe like this. This is, this is a Dallas Willard thing, but it, it works for me. The next diagram, please. Oh, this is. Perfect. Thank you. So um, in this one, so we've still got our inner stuff, our heart, our mind, our spirit, and our body, which is kind of outside of all that. But then the soul is the outer ring. The soul is that part of us, you could say, that integrates everything else. Uh, and even this doesn't quite capture it because the soul is interwoven with each of those layers, our body, our mind, our spirit. Uh, but the, the point here being, friends, I want to stretch your idea of maybe what it means to have a soul as opposed to having a body. The two are intertwined and used in that way as we see them in Scripture. Now, let's... Um, Let's go back to the topic of gender, and I, I want to spend a few minutes here because I think it's really important, and it's, it's very much in the public discourse, even um, a ton. These last couple of weeks in the news, the different pieces of legislation that are making their way around, and uh, way more than when we were playing the series. You know, it was going to be quite this, this current, but I, I want to talk about two things here. Uh, I want to talk about transgender people, and I want to talk about gender theory and then differentiate a little bit, if we can, between the two. So uh, hang with me in this. I think this is especially important for our young people, uh, also for their parents, their grandparents. Um, it's, uh, it's an important topic for us. And as we talk about this, I want to ask you to do something that is nearly impossible, but I'm going to ask you to try to do it anyway, and that's to try to set aside all of the politics around this. There's a, a lot to fight about inside of this topic, right? Whether we're, um, you know, we're talking about bathrooms or women's and girls' sports or uh, school curriculums, medical care, all these things have become incredibly politicized. 
And as important as those topics are, try to set those aside for a moment. And I, I want us to just sort of talk about, about people and talk about our ideas about uh, gender as well. So um, let me define terms for us here. So when, uh, when I say transgender, what I mean by that is I'm talking about somebody whose internal sense of being male or female doesn't match their body, doesn't match their biological sex. So for a transgender person, you'll often hear them say something like, I feel like I'm trapped in the wrong body, right? So this might be a biological male who feels internally, feels like they are a woman. It might be a biological female who feels more like she is a man. Uh, but that's, that's what I mean when I say transgender. And uh, I've, I've had opportunity now through the years to walk alongside a handful of transgender folks as, as pastor or as, you know, a kind of temporary pastor brought in to, to be with somebody. And um, uh, let me tell you, what they deal with is incredibly difficult. And one of the most difficult things that I've seen that people have to wrestle through. And just the, the descriptions of what it's like to live in that reality, of feeling like my internal sense of self does not match the body I've been given. It's incredibly painful. It affects all areas of life. Uh, one um, uh, one uh, transgendered author who's a Christian who's written a bit about this, and I've gotten to know her a bit over the last couple of years too, um, she says it, it, it feels like there's a creepy serum running through my body all the time, like there's just something unnatural going on in me all the time. It's a very difficult reality, I think, for people to imagine if it's something that they don't experience. Um, this, this phenomenon, if you will, of, of being transgender, this isn't new, right? This has been known about since ancient times. Uh, it's alluded to at, at least once in the biblical text as well, as where it forbids cross-dressing. Um, and, and also, it's, it's extremely rare. According to the, the DSM, which is the, the diagnostic handbook for the American Psychiatric Association, uh, that um, it's, it's extremely rare. It happens in about one-tenth of one percent of men and about one one-hundredth of one percent for women. Uh, it's, so it's, it's also almost entirely boys, and it almost always starts very, very young. It's very rare for somebody who's a teenager to begin experiencing these things for the first time. So that's, um, that, that's kind of a, a quick flyover of, of transgenderism. Uh, one thing in our culture that's happened over the last handful of years that I consider to be a, a great positive is there's, there's more and more been a, a very robust defense of transgender people. And this is super important, friends. I think that for you and I as followers of Jesus, that this, this should be a, an easy yes and a no-brainer for us, that our task uh, with transgender people is to love, it's to care, it's to defend, it's to walk with, it's to protect their rights. And I, I know that one gets really complicated because when you get into things like locker rooms and girls' sports and stuff, you're... You're not just dealing with one set of rights, you're dealing with two sets of rights. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not saying those things are simple. Uh, you have to, uh, you, you 
in my view, you have to consider the, the rights of both groups of people. It does no good to say, well, you've been disenfranchised, so now you're going to get all the rights, and these people are going to be disenfranchised instead. Biblical justice doesn't work that way. Biblical justice works on the principle of shalom, where you're seeing, you're seeing wholeness for everybody. It's, you don't just, just switch, switch out who it is that's going to be victimized in any given, uh, any given instance. So those things get complex, and, and I, I want to fully acknowledge that. But I want us to be really, really clear on the principle that if a transgender person is facing harm of whatever kind, then I, as a Jesus follower, the place where I need to be is standing between them and harm. Because that is the posture of the God who loves all people. Now, I want to differentiate between, uh, differentiate between uh, transgender and between gender theory. So gender theory, unlike transgenderism, gender theory is very, very new. And this is the idea that the gender you feel yourself to be, that how you identify is what you actually are. Right? So if my inner self feels like a woman, or if perhaps I feel like, like I don't fit well in the gender stereotypes of a man, uh, and I therefore identify as a woman, then therefore I am a woman. Right? That's, that's what gender theory would assert. Not just recognizing the disconnect, the dissonance that you feel there, but saying that that inner reality is the thing that determines whether you are male or female. Right? The biological reality is set aside. Right? Another way to state this might be that if, if your biology and your psychology are in conflict over which gender you are, the psychology wins. And that is what determines whether you are male or female. Right? And, and I would assert that, that that is false, that that's contrary to what we see in the scriptures about what it is to be male and female. And also, I'd assert it's, it's very harmful and becoming more harmful for us as that becomes more of a mainstream thought in our society. Um, often, gender theory is it's portrayed as what science tells us is true. Uh, but I, I would invite you, the next time you hear that or read that or if you just want to Google it, um, ask what that science is. There, it won't take long. There have been almost no studies about this. It's... it's it's a position that some in the sciences hold, but it is not a scientific position. It's a philosophical one. And one that I, I think, I think, um, I think it's, it's come around for good reasons. It's out of well-meaning concern that trans kids and adults not feel like outcasts or be discriminated against. But that doesn't mean it's an accurate portrayal of reality. And when we live in contrast to what reality says, it always leads us into harm. So uh, for a number of years now, um, there's been a, a growing number of scientists and medical professionals that are sounding the alarm, not around transgender people, but around gender theory, uh, and asserting that it's causing deep confusion in a lot of our young people who are identifying as trans, even though they don't fit the medical pattern that we've been used to seeing uh, as long as folks have studied this. Um, for... Well, up until a couple of years ago, most of those voices have been dismissed uh, as being saying what they're saying because of religious reasons or social conservative reasons, even though they're not religious or social conservatives. Uh, but the problem has grown too much 
for that to, to still be the case. More and more, a lot of secular and more left-leaning sources are acknowledging uh, this reality as well. So um, in the last two years, I'm regularly seeing articles in the New York Times. I think I've seen six this year. And the Atlantic and Vox and LA Times uh, that are talking about the problem of gender theory and our teens. Uh, 60 Minutes did a piece, um, I guess about a year ago, did a, a piece last May on what's known as the detransitioners, of folks who in their teens or early adult years have transitioned to the opposite gender and now they're, they're dialing that back. And Leslie Stahl, who's been on 60 Minutes for 30 years, she said, we have never had as much pressure on us as a news organization to squash a story as we have this story. And to their credit, they, they ran with it and, uh, and went with it anyway. Um, here's some of the, the data that these different publications are reporting. This is from the New York Times. Uh, not an opinion piece. This is, a, this is a news piece. Between 2017 and 2020, three years, the number of teens who identify as trans has almost tripled. Teens and young adults under the age of 25 now make up 43% of all transgendered people in the U.S., even though they only represent 19% of the population. Uh, in England, it's been even more dramatic. Uh, there's a, a very famous clinic called the Tavistock Center in London. It's the main gender clinic in the UK and where a lot of Western Europe will send people as well. They report that over the last 10 years, they have seen a 5,000% increase in teenage girls uh, who are coming in saying that they are transgender. It's actually caused the Ministry of Health in England to shut down uh, chemical and surgical transitioning for teens altogether. They've put a pause on it. So this is the very thing that's being debated in state legislatures around the country all over right now. In England, it's, it's a done deal. They tend to be about five to ten years ahead of us in these things, being less Christian and more progressive. And they've said, no, we're done. Something is happening here that is, is not okay. They've made the decision to, to just give teens more time to allow for more brain development, to allow puberty uh, to run its course. In a vast majority of teen girls who are dealing with, with a transgender identity, uh, it will resolve on its own by the end of puberty. Right? That's even without treatment. And so they're greatly discouraging any, uh, any transitioning in the meantime. Similar thing happening in Sweden, the Netherlands, Finland, Canada, New Zealand. And uh, what researchers have kind of been asking is, um, you, you know, at, at first they were kind of excited to see more kids coming out as trans. But then as, as the numbers grew and grew, they're asking, have we been wrong about gender dysphoria? That, you know, that it isn't a fraction of a percent, but it's a large part of the population, and they've come to the conclusion, no, there's something else going on, and we need to pump the brakes on this. Um, so a little more here. In the U.S., uh, there's a doctor named Erica uh, Anderson. She's a psychologist out of Berkeley. Uh, she's a trans woman herself. And for years, she's been the head of the U.S. Association for Transgender Health. She's been one of the pioneers in helping teens start their transitioning journey, and she's recently resigned. She says to the L.A. Times, I think it's gone too far. For a while, we were all happy that society was becoming more accepting and more families than ever were embracing children that were gender variant. Now it's got to the point where the, there are kids presenting at clinics whose parents say, this doesn't make sense. 
And, uh, and she's stopped. And she's encouraging the industry to stop. Uh, and there's all kinds of physical harm that happens in the chemical transition as well. Uh, bone density, uh, infertility, sexual development is stented. Um, one more here. This is Dr. Lisa Lippman. She's a researcher at Brown University. She's found that there's actually been an increase in mental health problems for teens who transition. Um, and uh, the question was raised in response to this, is it just because they're not accepted? If they were accepted, would, you know, would the mental health problems go away? And uh, she says no. She says uh, in her research it makes no difference if they're in a family or in a, a part of the country that's very accepting of their gender identity. The, uh, there's usually a, an initial decrease in mental health problems, but over time they reoccur and often recur more strongly. So, that's a whole lot of info, people. You still here? Uh, I want us, again, to catch the difference between these two, between transgenderism and then gender theory. And where I hope we can be in terms of this is clarity on two points. One is God's love for all, all people and our responsibility to carry that forward to all people, and also the ideas that underlie these things as well. Uh, gender theory, I would suggest to you, doesn't mesh well with scripture. And increasingly, we're seeing the harm that comes when this theory is handed to and accepted by young adolescents in particular, all people, but young adolescents who are in the most hormonally and socially confusing period of their life and told you, you need to figure out not just all these other things, but what gender you are as well. Uh, Dallas Willard, I remember him saying on several occasions, reality is what you run into when you're wrong. And if the Bible is correct about what it means to be male and female and that there is an inextricably bodily dimension to that, then of course we're going to run into mental health problems and other problems if we pursue that in the face of what is actually real. Uh, like our ethnicity and our family history, our, our maleness and our femaleness, it's not just an intellectual or an emotional reality. It's a bodily reality as well. It's physically grounded, not just psychologically determined. Right? Because our body tells us something about how we are made to bear God's image, and also our body and soul are deeply intertwined. And um, let me take a couple minutes. We're going to land the plane here, but what do we do with this? And uh, I think the, the answer is relatively simple, but it's one that we need to really take in and embrace. So this is Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good and pleasing and perfect will. Right. How do we sort out these things? How do we sort out the patterns of our world and the things of God? He says here, it's in the renewing of our minds. We're told it comes about 
as we reflect on God and what he's revealed to us about himself. And, uh, and he talks here about the body. So what do we do with this, this idea that our body is so tied to our identity? I'd say two things. Number one is this. It's embrace your body as you. Embrace your body as part of who you are. As we examine ourselves, if we find that there tends to be a a split in our thinking, kind of a latent dualism in us where we think about ourselves in these separate ways, think of your body. Embrace your body and all that comes with that as part of who you are. Right? And I'm saying that presuming there are things about your body, there are aspects of your identity that you're very happy about. And there are probably aspects that you are not that thrilled about. But you are you. Embrace that. You are meant to image God in this world as you. Embrace that. If that's hard, maybe try this as a practice in prayer. And that's regularly thank God for your body and all that that means. Thank God for who you are. Second is invite God to use your body, right? If we are submitting our bodies as living sacrifices, one, I think it implies we're owning that this is our body that we are sacrificing. We're embracing that. But second, we're then offering it back to God. Invite God to use your body. You are made by God uniquely, lovingly, and for a purpose. And he wants you not just to be in a relationship with him, but he wants you to be used in making the world better. He wants you to be part of that tearing down between our divisions that the scriptures talk about and that Christ says he's died for. He wants you to be part of his love and his grace defending those who find themselves damaged and discriminated against because of their bodies. He wants you to be his touch, his love, his compassion in those that he has put you in relationship with. Invite God to use your body. And this too is something that we can pray praying that God might use us as he has made us in this world that he loves so much. Let's pray together.